Welcome to the Data for Betterment podcast, Reimagine Hybrid Work, with your host, Maribel Lopez. Maribel is the founder of the Data for Betterment Foundation and Lopez Research. The Data for Betterment Foundation is a nonprofit organization that helps individuals understand and prepare for how their career will change as companies embrace new technologies. Lopez Research, a market research and strategy consulting firm, helps companies understand how technologies such as connected devices, collaboration, cloud computing, and AI change the customer and employee experience. The firm's clients range from startups to global corporations, including 10 of the Fortune 30. She's also the author of the highly regarded business book on how those technologies are transforming the company, employee, and customer experience, Right Time Experiences, published by Wiley. She's also a frequent public speaker at corporate events and contributor at Forbes.com. Maribel is currently researching and writing her next book on how to build successful strategies for workplace transformation. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, this is Maribel, and welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to be here today with Tracy Frey. We have known each other for a while through a lot of different categories of products at Google, and we've been talking about AI for a while, but I'm going to let Tracy introduce herself and her role at Google. Tracy, welcome. Sure. Yes, my role is a little bit complicated with an extraordinarily long title. So I'll describe that and then give a quick overview of what that actually means. So I sit within Google Cloud, and I'm a a part of the product team for Cloud AI and Industry Solutions. And within that, I'm the Managing Director for Outbound Product Management, Incubation, and Responsible AI. And essentially, my team really works closely with the product engineering organization, as well as all of the parts of the field organization in cloud to help understand our best opportunities for success, help drive that success with the products that we create. And as a part of that success is also all of the work we do with evaluating what we're creating for responsible AI and ethics and and how that's a core part of every part of our work together. You know, I love this concept of responsible AI, and I feel that we've been talking about artificial intelligence for some time, and we've spent a long time focusing on the mechanics of it, the machine learning models and what kind of mathematical models you would use, and not necessarily as much time talking about the ethics of AI and how you make sure when you're creating things, you're creating the right things and constructs out of the gate, because it's hard to dial things back once you've got them going, right? And I know that you've been working on this a long time. So I totally agree with this concept of responsible AI. And I know that to get there, you really need some kind of framework. So you and I were talking about this. And I know that in the past, you've discussed this notion of the seven principles of AI. Can you briefly maybe describe some of those principles, tell the audience a little more about that? Sure, absolutely. So Google's AI principles have actually two parts. There's the seven things that we believe AI should do in the world. And then there are four areas where we've determined we will not design or deploy advanced technology. So I'll describe those and then a little bit of how we got there and what those what those mean. So the seven things that we believe AI should do are be socially beneficial, avoid creating or reinforcing unfair bias, be built and tested for safety, be accountable to people, incorporate privacy design principles, 
uphold high standards of scientific excellence and be made available for uses that accord with these principles. That last one, the seventh one is a little, is in oftentimes the hardest for us to evaluate. But with the way that we do that is we look at primary purpose and use, the nature and uniqueness of the product or offering in question, the scale of that offering, and the nature of Google's involvement, which help us triangulate in on what is the scope of our responsibility in this particular situation. The four areas where we've said we will not design or deploy AI are areas where it would likely cause overall harm, where the principal purpose could cause direct injury if it has surveillance violating internationally accepted norms, and if the purpose contravenes international law and human rights. Those are also not simple to interpret, but they give us overall the the framework under which we can do our evaluations. So we began as Google to develop these AI principles actually in the summer of 2017, and it took over a year to really get them right. And it wasn't necessarily the sort of top line words that I just said to you. It was more in what does that mean? Like, how would we describe each of those, particularly when we're explaining this internally to our employees? And that was, it was hard. It took a long time. So over a year later in the summer of 2018, we published those principles. And, you know, as we just described, it's these statements of that outline our values. And in my experience, so I've been at Google now for just about 10 years, and I've worked in a lot of different parts of Google, the Google organization more broadly. And, you know, we at Google, we have a lot of ways that allow us to organize ourselves against a common purpose. So there's Google's mission statement, which I think if you asked any Googler, they would be able to quickly recite, which is organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. And so everything that Google does you know, needs to be aligned with that overall mission. We have our three respects, which is something that, that Sundar really articulated when he came into the CEO position, and that's respect the user, respect the opportunity, and respect each other. And that, again, provides sort of a framework for how we do the work of organizing the world's information and making it universally accessible and useful. And the AI principles, and granted, the world that I live in, I am living and breathing the AI principles every single day, so I may have somewhat of a unique perspective on this, but I really feel like they've been one of the most important things that we have implemented as an organization, because They keep us motivated by a common purpose. They succinctly communicate our values in developing advanced technology for the world. And they ensure that the way we use artificial intelligence is to the best of our abilities. And of course, we are always learning and growing and changing is in the best interest of humanity. And so when we put those principles into practice, and that's the hard part, by the way, the principles themselves, everyone can look at and say, yep, that sounds great. But how do you actually operationalize them and put them into practice? But then when you do that, our work becomes a collective exercise in surfacing those values in what we create. And they allow us all to make different decisions underneath those principles for different parts of the organization, which is critical and important, and yet still be operating with the same goal, the same values in mind which is really helpful when you have 
many, 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 many people who are making decisions every single day. And so to have something that they can evaluate that against is incredibly important. So one of the reasons I wanted to have this discussion specifically with you and for this podcast, which is around reimagining hybrid work, is I think that we're at an interesting time and juncture in people's culture. There's going to be a lot of discussion of how do we create culture in a hybrid work world where some people work remotely full-time, some people work in an office, even people that were frontline workers have had a tremendous amount of digitization in their processes. So now everything's digital. People have all this data and they're starting to figure out, hey, we could do things with this data. We want to analyze this data. We want to create better workplace management strategies, all of these things. And I think at this point, the reason why I wanted to have the discussion around AI and ethics is because it's a good time as people are rethinking their culture, rethinking how they want to use data to really start to put some of these practices into play. And it's, as I mentioned earlier, doing them after the fact is a little tough sometimes. So how can I begin to understand and apply what people call sometimes the opposing ethical frameworks of AI? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is complicated. And in in truth, I think there is no easy answer here. And so the answer is in embracing the complication. And any principles, our principles, anybody else's, they're not magic. They don't answer the hard questions on how to move forward, at least not immediately. You can't use them to just quickly get an answer to whether or not you can do something. Because what does that even mean? What would it mean? What would it look like to be socially beneficial? And and how do you evaluate that? You know, and from where I sit, you know, of course we are also, it's important that we're creating business success as well. And so what happens if those come into tension with each other? There is no way to, there's no universal definition of what is fair, what is fairness. So it is not an easy proposition. And so any AI principles, they don't relinquish us, and I'll just speak for us in Google Cloud, they don't relinquish us from having hard conversations. They don't make decisions for us. And in fact, there's no checklist. There's no ethics decision tree that can take into account the unique circumstances of every AI system or offering. And so it requires a embracing of the uniqueness of every thing that we're creating and not only everything that we're creating, but where what we're creating sits or will sit in the world. And what does that world already look like so that we can bring all of that into conversation with the technology in order to then create something that we feel is to the best of our ability aligned with our AI principles and and hopefully can go beyond that to really create some change and offer new opportunities. And I think part of what you said really resonated with me because we're at such an interesting point in time. And particularly, you know, from my perspective, from, from the use of advanced technologies like AI, where we are in a moment of what we can soon predict to be a moment of recovery or a period of recovery. And Combined with that, what you described as a moment where we've become more reliant for all kinds of reasons on technology, on remoteness, on all of those things. And 
So we get to choose now, how do we recover? What are the ways that we, as a, as a global community, as us in Google, as working with our customers, our partners, et cetera, how will we recover? And what are the things that we want to make sure we put in place so that recovery works for everyone? Because we can do that now in a really unique way than we could have ever even done it before, I think, which is if I were to look for a silver lining in a really hard time, I really see that there is this incredible opportunity before us. And yet, like all of that is is further complicated by the fact that there are different comfort levels with how to incorporate this kind of advanced technology into everyday life. And just speaking like specifically as an example of this outside of anything in Google, but just in terms of thinking about something like how do different countries respond to something like the coronavirus pandemic. And Taiwan, if you've seen any of the research about the way that they responded, was tremendously successful, but it requires a different approach to personal privacy that, you know, I think in somewhere like the U.S. would be harder. And so what does that mean? How do we then think about all of those things when there might be more willingness at this moment But how do we ensure that what we're doing now creates the best long-term outcomes for where we want to be? So one of the things I think is really very interesting about this is the concept of data. And I know that you and I have had discussions around societal context, and I don't believe people really fully get the notion of societal context. And in a lot of ways, it's just like analytics has always been since the dawn of time, you know, bad information in, bad information out. And we're spending a lot of time saying, oh, I can take all this historical data and put it into a system and create models around it, and it will be wonderful. So maybe we could spend a few moments sharing with the audience what you see as societal context and why that matters. Totally. And I'll start by saying you're right, that you can take all of that historical data and you can apply AI to it and you can make amazing predictions based on that historical data. And that could be incredibly beneficial to a a business or an outcome or whatever it may be. And certainly in, in my opinion, that information is not complete. And the risk, the risk here is that because AI, and this is why I think these advanced technologies are unique in terms of thinking about things like ethics and responsibility. The risk is that whatever is a part of that historical data that's baked into that historical data, whether or not that's intended, and for the most part, it is not intended, not necessarily even understood, that will then replicate at incredible speed and scale. And so if there are say, issues of unfair bias in that historical data, you can be in a position where by applying AI, you actually exacerbate that unfair bias in ways that you might not have predicted at the onset. And so again, in sort of thinking about that concept of, okay, well, how do we want to recover now with every all of the tools that we have available? The societal context is incredibly important. And this is hard for technology companies because it goes outside of the walls (laughs) and it goes outside of the evaluation of the technology in front of you. And that evaluation is incredibly important. And it will tell you how does the 
model in front of you and what you're evaluating, if you evaluate for fairness, what does that look like for this particular thing? But in my opinion, that doesn't actually give you enough information to really make different choices. And I'll use an example to illustrate what this means, but I'll start by saying one of the things that has really been on my mind, even more so in recent weeks, although certainly for quite some time, but it's really starting to crystallize for me, is how much AI is already this incredible marriage between technology and humanity. Because the training data that we use when it's a AI model that can affect a outcome for a human is humans, it's people. And so it can be easy or desirable to think about data as impersonal. But I really, I really want to think and encourage a, a new way of thinking about it, that data is humanity and what we are doing and what we're creating has extraordinary impact on humanity. So a good example of what I mean by this, and I'll, I'll run through some stats here because I, I think it's just really powerful, is you know, if you look at the space of financial services, you know, it's a highly regulated industry. There's a lot of risk evaluation. And so when a bank needs to, you know, assess whether or not they can offer financial instruments to consumers, they have to and should apply a risk model to understand, can I do this for this person? Is it safe for me? Is it risky for me? What? And because the risk, you know, if it goes badly, has huge negative impact to them, right? And so that's hard. And yet what that can do is create, or what it has done is create massive amounts of people who are unbanked today. And I'll talk about this just within the US. So I'll run through some statistics around some of the things that have created a space of financial exclusion, because this can then really illustrate what is the societal context that you have to think about. So when you think about the US, and we've had, obviously, you know, there are all the way back to the starting of what's now the United States of America, you can think about something like slavery as having an extraordinary impact on this country. And that was, you know, starting in 1619. In 1874, the Freedmen Savings and Trust Company collapsed, which created a major loss of trust in banks um, from their 60,000 primarily Black depositors. So, you know, hundreds of years ago, you already have this space of distrust because of a, of a bank collapse. In 1881, insurance companies declared that policies held by Black customers were worth a third of the value of equivalent policies held by white customers. And so already there is a value reduction extending back hundreds of years. In 1921, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was a vibrant community of, of Black-owned businesses, was destroyed in violent riots from white residents. So that then further destroyed the financial success that those Black-owned businesses had been able to create through their own recovery. In 1934, which arguably is not that long ago, I mean, it is, but 1934, redlining began, which was a systematic, explicit exclusion of Black homeowners from mortgage lendings. And that began with the passage of the National Housing Act. Until 1962, more than 98% of federally backed mortgages go to white homeowners. So that has has systemically excluded Black homeowners from mortgages, but also keeps them, again, systematically from owning properties in more desirable neighborhoods. 
1935, the Social Security Act is passed. It's a critical social safety net, but it excluded occupations predominantly filled by Black and other minoritized workers. And the the National Labor Relations Act allowed unions to exclude people of color from collective bargaining. From 1969 to the present day, welfare reform policies can have exacerbated what's now a really firmly established racial wealth gaps. And, you know, in, in the 1990s, then you have the rise of payday and auto title lending. They hit the scene. And in both of those cases, borrowers pay annual interest rates well above 300%. And the odds are they will never, they will, will require another loan to pay off the first one. And again, and again, and again, and again. So 2008, we all know, huge financial crash, even to the present day. So in 2020, upwards of 90% of businesses owned by people of color have been or will likely be shut out of the Paycheck Protection Program because the rules related to supplying loans to sole proprietorships, which is a category of businesses that overwhelmingly encompasses black and brown owners in the U.S., they came out last. And so the money was gone. And so you can look at this this history, and it's created these compounding exclusionary outcomes across generations of communities. And that has generational effects, right? So just 8% of black families leave inheritance to their children compared to 26% of white families. And yet, There's a study that Citibank published just a a couple of months ago showing that America could have been $16 trillion richer if it had not been for the inequities in education, in housing, in wages, and in business investment between Black and white Americans over the past 20 years alone, right? That's crazy. And so when you then think about societal context and you think about minoritized communities and members of minoritized communities coming to seek financial instruments, loans, et cetera. All of that history shows up when they walk in the door. And that history is also baked into the risk models that banks use to evaluate. And at this point in time, that's not intended, but it's there. And so it creates this, exacerbates this incredible challenge. And that's our challenge. We have to look for everything that we're doing across every industry. Where does this live? What has happened? Because in order for a bank to make a different decision, which they desperately want to do, they don't have information about those who are unbanked. And so if they look just at their historical training data, they're not going to see that. They don't have it. And so how do we then look across all of that to create solutions? So I know that was a long example, but hopefully a a helpful illustrative one. I really think it was perfect example because it gets to the heart of the matter that you could be training your models with data that while it is technically accurate, it isn't reflective of where we are today or where we want to be. It, in some cases is not correct because societal norms have changed, or it is fundamentally missing data, which is the other thing that you've gotten at. So if you look at, you may have the the right data, but it is not representative. Things have changed in terms of how we as a country, even in laws, have changed, or it's just flat out missing data. 
right? So if you look at all these, that's a that's a big challenge to think about when you're pulling together a model. And that's and that is part of the AI ethics framework that I think we all need to think about. Like, do we think about data augmentation? And if we do, how would we do that in a way that is I don't want to even say accurate, but more a way that we're looking at, we're not creating any other issues by doing augmentation, because that's a flip side of the coin. So it's a very nuanced problem where I think you have to really go at it from a couple of different angles. If you're starting now, or even if you've started to go back and look at what you've done before and try to figure out if it's actually producing the results you need. So with all that as a a backdrop, if you were talking to somebody today about how they should think about starting their responsible AI journey or modifying their responsible AI journey, what would you tell them to do? Yeah. So there's both tactical things and more philosophical things, <laughs> right? And the and I'll start with the latter. So I think it is really important, I think, for, for any organization to really start with the recognition that what they are going to embark on is going to require them to go outside of their comfort zone. There's really no world in which you can do this work and not go outside of your comfort zone. And, you know, I'll speak for me personally, particularly as a white privileged woman, it requires me to be confronted with the realities of how I unintentionally participate or intentionally maybe even participate in systems that I didn't even realize existed, you know, and that's like the crux of some of these challenges, right? And so it requires us the, the beginning question of, are you willing to understand what is considered the norm and what is then the other? Because if you're going to do this work, the goal is to ensure that there is no other, that there is inclusion and there is belonging. And that can be really painful. It can be really hard to confront that. And it is not the normal work of a technology company, but it is extraordinarily important. And it's extraordinarily powerful in, and it has like really powerful effects outside of you know, the actual work of evaluating technology. So as an example of that, part of what our process has done for us is it's really normalized, really hard conversations. And it's made all of us individually better humans because we have learned so much about ourselves and and how we need to change. And when you combine that with the ability to tackle these really hard, complicated, painful realities of the way things exist in the world, you know, we can now do have those kinds of conversations, or I can have those kinds of conversations in every aspect of my life in a very different way than I could have years ago. And so there are all kinds of benefits to doing this, but it requires an enormous amount of investment and willingness to really push yourselves and be confronted with realities that are hard. That's the big sort of philosophical question. Once you've answered, yes, I'm in. And even if you even if you don't really know if you're in, I encourage everybody to say, yes, I'm in and then be willing to keep at it because there will come a point where you will where you will understand and believe and see the benefit that I'm talking about, even if you don't see it initially. So commit to it and commit to it in all of its complicated difficulty and commit to any time something goes awry, a way that you can come together and say, what happened? And then how do we address this so that we can go forward? 
and fix along the way. Cause you can't predict, you're not going to be able to fix all of the things. And it's certainly not always going to be happy and rosy. It's just a, a reality. So then, you know, structurally from my perspective, writing down those AI principles like for yourself or whatever they may be, your value statements, whatever they are, and really clarifying what does that mean for your organization? How do we want to show up in the world? What's important to us? That's the important first, first step. But if you do that and you stop there, it's not going to actually help you create that future. So then you have to determine how do we operationalize this? What is this? What are the structures underneath? And from my perspective, from what we've learned, I would really encourage that a part of that operationalizing is really focused on conversation and focused on unpacking and learning and growing from learning what currently exists in the world and recognize that you also don't know what you don't know. And so how do you invite in the lived experience that I certainly don't have of what some of these negative impacts might be? What are all of the ways that you can do that either internally or externally and be again, willing to then hear that because it's hard, but that like when you, when you sort of set up your structure to embrace the complication, to embrace the complexity, to exist in this conversation and learning and growing and changing all then aligned to, you know, whatever the principles you've created. And for us, what we do at the end of those conversations is we create what we call an alignment plan. And that alignment plan are all of the things that we can think of or where we know we need to learn more that we think can help reduce harms that would be created if we hadn't done this. And in some ways, you know, they also can outline the opportunity for us. And that alignment plan then becomes part of the work plan for that product. And it's not just owned by product and engineering. There are owners of parts of our alignment plans across all different functions, you know, and so all of those combined can then create the opportunity for you to really be realizing the future you want. I love the concepts that you're rolling about out about the shared responsibility within an organization. I think that's super powerful. I could talk about this topic all day, and I'm sure you could as well. But sadly, we have to come to a close. It has been wonderful speaking with you, Tracy. Thanks for your insights on how we can start the journey towards responsible AI. And I look forward to seeing your progress moving forward. Thank you. No, it's great to be here. So I look forward to next time. (laughs) 